Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lever. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by principal analyst Tom Musian to discuss the impact of the vaccine rollout on the travel industry. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much. Pleasure to join you, Jen and uh, Sharon, and I'm happy to share um, my insights and uh, fresh research on this topic. Great. So let's start with a little bit of like the state of the state. Give us a sense of where the travel industry stands today, knowing that we're recording this episode on April 15th and things are moving quickly and changing all the time. Well, uh, the travel industry um, in general, overall, is uh, preparing to ramp up, um, really. So there's uh, there's a glimpse of hope uh, and positivity, optimism even, um, returning, you know, not back to normal quite just yet, but um, definitely uh, beginning to travel again. Uh, and I'm referring to mass travel um, via... Um, you know, air, um, ground, as well as um, as well as sea, um, and importantly, you know, there's a distinction between domestic travel and international travel. So, um, uh, international travel, um, I guess that's the one that's uh, really complicated right now. Um, so there's a lot happening right now, especially uh, in connection with the rollout of vaccines uh, in different countries. Um, and there are lots of uh, uh, sort of complexities associated with that, um, both on the regulatory side, because, uh, you know, this international travel is governed by uh, international agreements, cross-border, in, you know, between nations, um, acceptance of, uh, you know, uh, vaccines, uh, different brands of vaccines, for example, is a key obstacle. Uh, but that's something that's being solved uh, at the moment. Um, and and still, you know, just like in 2020, we're still dealing with containment issues until the world reaches herd immunity. So countries are really obsessing about containing the spread of the virus, which is uh, has proven to be very elusive, right? So we've seen countries with two, three, four waves of uh, of COVID with various variants. Um, so. Um, there's a lot going on. It's it's a it's a challenging situation, but uh, there's definitely hope on the horizon. So, Tom, I would expect that when you're talking about having similar requirements or regimes uh, between countries for that international um, travel, I'm expecting that that probably means in a lot of those cases both of the countries or that triangle of countries requires vaccines. Is that true or is that, are, are some countries taking different approaches? Yeah, absolutely right. Because, you know, think of it as, um, you know, the visa regimes between countries and regions. Um, and I'm specifically trying to refer to visa-free travel, right? Like, for example, between United States and Europe, it's, it's existed because these uh, regions and countries are very close to each other. They're partners. They have similar security standards and protocols and collaboration. So they wouldn't require each other's citizens to have visas, for example. Same thing now applies to vaccines. Um, and uh, these, um, um, they refer to them as travel bubbles or corridors would be negotiated between countries that share the same rigor and standards, um, you know, protecting their people um, against COVID as well as distributing vaccines. Um, so these countries will negotiate 
travel bubbles uh, and not require like quarantine, for example. So that's what we're seeing on a bilateral basis and at best on a regional basis. Few examples of that I can mention just so that, you know, for the, for the audience's benefit, uh, like Australia and New Zealand, you know, two countries close to each other, historically, you know, strong partners, uh, similar in their policies uh, and also their success uh, at containing, um, you know, uh, COVID-19, um, deciding to open up uh, freer travel. Um, in addition, Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, you know, countries that are, again, bound by economic ties, friendship, uh, and, and sort of, you know, the, also sort of the levels of regulations and health standards that, that exist between those two countries uh, are currently negotiating um, an arrangement for uh, quarantine-free travel. Um, so, so that's what we're seeing emerging, and I would like to think of the world as a big, you know, you know set of triangles. Uh, where you basically have a country A, country B, and country C. Um, so country A would be your country of origin, country B being your transit, and country C being your final destination. So all of these countries, in order to make that triangle complete, and in order to allow point-to-point uh, -point and transit travel, uh, would have to share similar guide, you know, similar rules, uh, right? Uh, so. Otherwise, you know, uh, citizens from one country would not be able to transit through or go to the destination country. So, um, and the world will reconnect itself as as far as these triangles can be multiplied and connected to other destinations. That's how the world will probably emerge. But at the at the current stage, we only have small isolated triangles or even you know, direct lines between A and B. Um, so, and obviously for the world to be reconnected again, we would need to connect, you know, 200 and some countries. And that's a whole lot of, you know, uh, triangles, metaphorically speaking. Um, and uh, that's that's the challenge. But so we're, we're making baby steps at the moment. So Tom, there's a lot of debate about vaccine mandates. It seems to me like consistency on that front and that issue could have a big impact on travel. Uh, where does that stand today? You know, you hit it on the nail. Um, right now, this is the biggest debate that is out there, whether to mandate or not mandate vaccines. Uh, my personal position is that mandating vaccines right now is premature. Um, and uh, many countries and international organizations agree with that, uh, which is the reason why, you know, IATA, which is the association of, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, airlines for that represents airlines, 200 some airlines, uh, the Council for International Air, Airports, uh, which basically like is an association representing all the air, you know, airports and tra transit hubs in the world, as well as, you know, WHO, as well as, you know, governments, big, you know, countries like United States have decided not to mandate uh, vaccines just yet. Why? Because we haven't yet reached that level where there is such a critical mass of people who are vaccinated um, because otherwise you would be excluding millions and millions of people who are otherwise healthy but precluded from travel. So that would be kind of like discrimination and also bad for business because you're really there's huge segments of the population that you're all of a sudden calling ineligible or not travel worthy. Uh, that's the term I like to use. Um, and also uh, simply because there is such a mess in, in vaccine acceptance because, you know, country A 
could have, um, you know, vaccines branded like, you know, Pfizer or Moderna, and others would have AstraZeneca or Sinopharm or Sputnik from Russia. Um, and unless these vaccines are reciprocally accepted, there will not be travel. Like Chinese, for example, are not accepting Pfizer, not accepting anything else except Chinese vaccines at the moment. Today's date is April 15th. Um, Singapore uh, is trying to be, you know, flexible and open to all, but again, uh, only accepting, willing to accept the ones that its own Ministry of Health accepts, you see? Um, and, and that's the issue. Uh, so mandating something like this when there is no clear, reciprocal, fair, and equitable terms doesn't make sense. Uh, nevertheless, will it be implemented in the future? I think so. Uh, once uh, th this vaccine acceptance issue gets solved, um, and once uh, countries feel more comfortable and confident about their ability to accept the risk from potentially unvaccinated or uh, potentially um, you know, people who might be carriers, um, then, um, yeah, this, this would be on hold until that time. So we've been talking a lot about travel as a general concept, but I, you know, I suspect that there's a difference here between travel for leisure and travel for business. And business travel is, has such a big impact on the travel industry as a whole. And we're clearly not back to a place where we're doing a lot of business travel. How much of an impact do you think that that has? And from a timing perspective, are we on different um, different timeframes between business travel and leisure travel? Huge. Um, so business travel is the most lucrative segment um, for, you know, for at least for air travel. You know, you don't see a lot of business travelers hopping on a cruise line. Um, so for air travel, definitely, uh, they are a big, lucrative, important um, you know, cash generator, a revenue source. Now, what's happened is a couple of things. Um, businesses have adjusted already to this situation where they have to, you know, forget about face-to-face -face meetings and uh, do things uh, virtually like what we're doing today. Um, and um, a lot of them have become kind of cool with it because, um, A, uh, it saves you the time and effort, you know, to travel somewhere else. And B, you're saving a whole bunch of money. Um, and it kind of becomes addictive because, you know, you, you look at your tra travel budgets. If you happen to sort of figure out a way to avoid those costs and still do your job, then, you know, what's the case for, you know, traveling again? So um, there are some estimates that about 20 to 30 percent of that business travel is gone permanently because companies will have, have adjusted and basically are... Uh, would deem certain travel non-essential. You see what I'm saying? And that's a, actually a good thing. Um, in some countries like France, uh, just recently this week, uh, for other reasons, but they decided to cancel air travel within the country if um, that travel could be replaced by uh, rail travel, for example. Um, so so there's gonna be there are gonna be other alternatives. You know, shorter trips, business travel in a car, great. You could do it. You know, long haul trips that you can potentially do on the web and save a bunch of money. Hmm. So I think I think there's that. Secondly, 
um, you know, there are business insurance and risks involved as well, right? So, um, you know, a company like, for example, Forrester would like to send an analyst from United States to a place like, um, I don't know, China, right? Uh, there are some risks associated with that. What if that person, you know, catches COVID or some, you know, there's some health risks associated with that. Would the company be willing to take that risk? Would the employee be willing to take that risk? You know, that's also a question. So um, they have to protect their employees. They have to protect their clients. Uh, so until it's safe to travel, they are probably not likely uh, to really open the floodgates and just, you know, travel at will. Um, so I think uh, the trend is they're going to be much more careful, very selective. Uh, they will be selecting destinations based on risk, um, as well as looking if whether it's that that travel specifically is necessary or not. So if business travel never returns to pre-pandemic levels, what does that mean for the, the travel companies? Can they survive? And especially the airlines, I would think of. Um, will they survive or will they adapt? They will adjust. Uh, they've already adjusted down so much. Um, so, uh, I mean, literally, they've gone from 100% to, you know, 0.5%. This is a real number for an airline like Singapore Airlines. It's a major international airline with 110 aircraft most of them long haul. Um, so, so they've already downsized quite a bit. So for them, you know, a loss of, you know, 15, 20% net on net, you know, from a year before in that business segment, you know, it's still good news uh, because it's better than what they have today. Um, that's one. Secondly, air, airlines can always uh, reduce capacity. Uh, and also, uh, you know, maintain their costs you know, smarter. So, for example, in, you know, Delta, you know, sold a whole bunch of aircraft uh, to uh, Bank of China Aviation and then leased them back, rented them back. So instead of owning aircraft, you lease them on the need basis. So when you need more capacity, you can add that capacity by renting it. Uh, as opposed to owning this hard capacity and then having to pay for maintenance and, um, um, you know, engineering and overhaul and all these other costs. So uh, they will adjust and they will be flexible. And, um, you know, when and if time comes when they need more capacity, I'm sure uh, Boeing would be very happy to sell them more planes. Um, but as of right now, uh, they're all thinking about, you know, matching available capacity to the actual demand. And so they're going to be smarter about uh, capacity management and revenue management. But what about uh, vacations, vaccine vacations and the the leisure side of travel? What are you seeing there? OK, that's where, where it gets really exciting. Um, because, um, I mean, my prediction is that, you know, you know, people, human beings, you know, like mobility or, you know, the right to go somewhere, it's like, a, uh, it's a right you're born with. It's your birthright, right? Um, well, you know, we love to go places, um, you know, people, they don't like to be trapped in one place. So there is a lot of pent up demand. Um, people are yearning for that, uh, opportunity, but, at the same time, you know, our data uh, indicates, you know, research data at Forrester indicates that at least in America, you know, uh, half of Americans are, you know, concerned about, about, about travel at the moment. 
So, and given the option to travel, uh, they would, you know, ask themselves twice whether it's worth going. Um, and also where, you know, if it's domestic. And we asked to actually try to tease out, you know, some uh, uh, decision-making factors for them. Um, and, and, and some of them are saying that if I have a choice to go somewhere by car, I'd probably go by car. Uh, some are saying I'd probably either buy or rent an RV. And because I can control that, that environment, I can control where to stop, or I control where to stay overnight, I'm in control and I'm, you know, I'm limiting my interaction with the outside world, therefore keeping it safe, right? So um, leisure is going to transform, like the whole concept of leisure is going to transport, transform, uh, especially when it also has to do with staying somewhere like in, in a hotel or a bed and breakfast or an Airbnb. Uh, so early on in uh, last year, there was a huge hit on the, on the home sharing situation because people were afraid that somebody with COVID could be staying at that property. And then the owner of the, or operator of that property wouldn't necessarily sterilize and clean that property. And so they will go you know, back into that, um, they, they would rent that room or apartment or whatever. And then you know, they will touch surfaces that were contaminated, God forbid, and they will catch COVID that way. So people were afraid of home share as a whole. Uh, more willing to trust is hotels, um, chain hotels, bigger hotels. Uh, but like smaller hotels who probably don't have those, you know, rigorous health standards, stay away from it. So there's there are all these f uh, fears. Uh, on the flip side, uh, there are other types of leisure that are perfectly safe, well-maintained, well-contained, and, 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 you know, downright awesome, like cruise lines. So we are, an ex in Singapore, we're an exception in the world. Royal Caribbean operates the only ship that they have. So out of 29 ships, 28 are grounded. And the only ship that's actually sailing right now is the Quantum of the Seas out of Singapore. And that cruise goes to nowhere. It's a cruise to nowhere deal where uh, you pay, you know, 350 bucks and you get on this cruise for three days. It'll take you to international waters and then we'll bring you back. It will not stop anywhere. Uh, but you get a full package service, seven star um, all you can eat and all you can drink and kids travel for free. Um, and, uh, uh, they're doing a great job of it. Um, and, and it's a great example of, of, you know, leisure travel coming back and people really enjoying themselves. So Tom, I can imagine, you know, we just talked about leisure travel kind of picking up and, you know, maybe business travel changing, but I can imagine that this is really changing how, customers are experiencing the the travel experience what that journey is like new requirements new forms and things of that nature so could you maybe talk us through what are those changes what is that experience and maybe are there kind of new players in the game that are helping um, ease some some pain points or new pain points for travelers today yeah absolutely super important question um, because it, it is true that the customer journey or the travel journey has gotten a lot more complicated um, and it's got more additional elements, uh, effort uh, that were brought in that, that people unfortunately will have to deal with. Um, and, you know, if you, if you look at sort of customer experience in terms of, you know, how convenient and easy it is, you know, like the three E's that we use at Forrester, you know, easy, effective and emotionally positive. 
while it's no longer easy, uh, definitely, and it's uh, probably not so emotionally positive as it was before. I mean, before you could just book a trip, you know, 40 minutes before you have to travel, literally, here uh, in some parts of the world. Um, and, and because the check-in, check-out process and immigration is so effective, that you could really get through um, and travel basically on a whim, uh, go somewhere on a weekend. You can just decide two hours before that. That's no longer the case. That journey has has now been extended. So you have got to start planning and doing things at least, you know, two or three days before. Uh, why? Because, for example, now you're required to have a, a negative, uh, you know, COVID test result. Uh, and then you need to be able to prove it. Um, and that test result needs to be validated by somebody. And the clinic where you took that test needs to be an accredited clinic. Um, and then you need to have a health authorization form. And if you're going internationally somewhere, then you need to declare that your intention to travel and sometimes obtain a permission to enter the country before you even fly. And then the airline needs to confirm that you are who you are and you've got the test that it takes. The result says whatever and you're, you know, the, the wherever you got that piece of paper or a digital certificate is actually valid and it's not fake um, and then it's been taken within an acceptable time you know uh, uh, time period before travel and then once you arrive your troubles don't end there you know you need uh, additional things you gotta like for example if you're entering Singapore you're required to download a government app in that app you're supposed to identify yourself and enter your particulars and your um, you know your travel pass and your covid results and, uh, and and fill out a declaration that you you know uh, to assert in fact that you best to your knowledge you are free of all, all you know um, um, covid etc cetera, etc cetera. and then you might be permitted to get to the immigration check so that's even before you show your passport because they can deport you even before that. Once you get there, you know, the, depending on, 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 on the rapid test that you will actually take at the airport upon arrival, they may decide that, you know, you might be at risk because you're coming from a high-risk country. They will just automatically route you to a hotel where you will stay 14 days in a quarantine. Your journey isn't just hopping on a plane and getting somewhere quickly. Uh, your journey could, could, could take just to go from A to B, 16 to 17 days. Uh, and there's a lot of moving parts. So now it's neither effective, <laughs> emotionally pleasing or easy. Uh, so, but even if you're, you're still brave enough to do that, all of that, because it's so you know important to you, um, be prepared as an individual. Um, now, the travel companies, oper you know, operators, you know, uh, travel agencies, booking agencies, whoever sell you the ticket and whoever carry you from point A to B, it, it, it should be their job to actually help you through that journey, you know? Uh, and that's, that's an area where they will differentiate themselves, you know, uh, where they will demonstrate to the customer that they're actually alleviating some of this pain, making that travel as much, you know, easier as possible. Um, you know, insurance companies are actually helping as well, like providing travel assurance in travel insurance policies, specifically for costs related to quarantine stay or potential medical emergency related to that stuff, et cetera, et cetera. You know, Air, you know uh, Changi Airport here in Singapore just this week launched uh, an app 
that helps any traveler that wishes to come here to basically keep everything in one app. Uh, and it's got links to where you can go get tested. Uh, it tells you what kind of specific tests you need to take. It gives you alerts and notifications. It stores your you know data there, um, et cetera, et cetera. So like these, these mobile wallets, basically, that contain all this information, and they are acceptable by the authorities. Um, so companies got, have got to do a lot more in order to do to, to make this journey as easy as possible, you know, considering the, the limitations and the rules. Um, otherwise, people will probably say, you know, some people might say that this is just too difficult, not worth it. So as a as a close, Tom, I mean, what is I feel like maybe doubling down on what you just said, but like what is your one sort of piece of advice to the players in the travel industry, right? As we sort of embark on this next stage, um, whether that's, you know, to experiences or what have you, but what are your sort of closing thoughts to those players? Well, I like to do things in, in, in three. So I'll give you three. Um, first of all, adopt, um, if you haven't already done so, and I'm, I'm, I'm speaking directly to the, you know, air and travel hospitality companies is, is, you know, adopt that customer centric view. Try to think like, what is it like for them? Um, once, once you, you know, shift your thinking that way, you, all of a sudden, all these great ideas come out because, you know, we are all ourselves customers before we are executives and operators and businessmen and whatever. Um, so it takes empathy to really start thinking straight, um, start thinking how helpful can I be to my customers? So that's, that's advice. Number one, secondly, um, just what I said about that, you know, journey, the customer journey, the travel experience, you know, uh, it's not as easy as, as it was before. It's a lot, a lot longer, stretched out and much more complicated. So there are a lot more elements involved. And this is not all that's going to continue changing. Uh, there will be new rules. There will be new guidelines. There will be, you know, rules and guidelines specifically for, you know, certain countries and corridors and certain others for other countries and regions and whatever, which means you've really got to be like multidimensional. So if you are a global company, a global operator, you've got to have uh, basically, you know, a multitude uh, of uh, operating procedures and standards in place, which is pretty complex. Uh, so you've got to start doing that now. Start, start thinking uh, regionally. Start thinking like uh, in, in these triangles, because that's that's how you're going to design operating, you know, procedures and principles based on applicability uh, to specific, you know, routes where passenger flows, you know, passenger flows exist, and start adjusting to that because it's not going to be one standard fits all. It's going to be you know, many standards for many different, you know, segments and routes and, 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 and travelers. That's advice number two. Advice number three would be, um, you know, about data and, and ecosystems. Uh, so there's going to be a whole lot more customer data uh, that you've got to collect and share. And that needs to be secure. That needs to be respectful of customers' consent. It needs to be compliant. It needs to be real-time. Uh, companies never had to deal with that kind of data collaboration and sharing before. I mean, the only thing that comes to mind that was as complex and, and internationally is Interpol, where you know countries and companies were sharing criminal data, uh, right, for apprehension of criminals across the world as they move. We're going to need to create a database that's about 5 billion people 
in order to can you imagine and that has there's there's no precedent for that uh and again there are going to be you know 250 odd different data governance policies based on a number of countries there are and and it's a lot more also like regional and sort of you know uh, data sharing agreements and collaboration agreements and privacy uh things so that's uh, that creates a yet ad additional uh complexity that isn't just up to you as one company uh it's it you're a part of a network or an ecosystem so um, that's crucially important, not just only for compliance, but also for contact tracing, right? For containment. So we need to know who went where, you know, through what, and for all of that stuff needs to be traced. Um, so that would be my final advice is, is really, really gear up um, for this type of huge um, sort of a data uh, uh, transformation uh, and, and uh, you know, take on that responsibility because you will be liable and accountable for it. Uh, that's, that's the other thing. Great. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.